Our first speaker uh, doesn't need a whole lot of introduction uh, because she interacts with all of us through the Ryan White program every day. Um, Dr. Laura Cheever is um, the Associate Administrator of the HIV AIDS Bureau, or HAB, at uh, HRSA. Uh, she uh, oversees the conduct of the Ryan White program and all of its activities. Uh, she's also a provider and sees patients uh, uh, at the Bartlett Clinic at Hopkins. So she's not only administrating, but she's also a provider in the field and um, also the co-chair of this meeting. So welcome. Bob. Thank you. Uh, so thank you all uh, for being here. I don't have any conflicts as a government employee. Um, uh, just, I always like to start with our vision and mission of the HIV AIDS Bureau. We administer the Ryan White HIV AIDS program there, and the vision is optimal HIV care and treatment for all, and the mission is to provide both leadership and resources to assure access to and retention in high-quality integrated care and treatment services for vulnerable people with HIV and their families. Um, importantly, in August of this year, August 18th, will be 30 years since the Ryan White uh, Care Act was first signed into law. And um, it's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible program. I mean, I work in the federal government and I work for this program because the work that you all do every day makes such a difference. It's one of the few programs in the government um, where we provide both medical care and essential support services to really enable people who are living at the margins to be able to get care and stay in care. And as a result, we have incredibly good outcomes. We are gonna have our uh, national conference this year in August. Um, and I'd encourage you uh, to come to that. I don't have the dates, I don't think, in this presentation, so I'm not sure they were noted by them, but we'll get them out and on the screen for you to, to mark your calendars, because a clinical conference will happen in conjunction with that next summer. Um, and it's gonna be in Washington, D.C. So um, in terms of client-level data, uh, you all have people back in your organization that spend a lot of time uh, giving data to us, and that is actually very, very important because we're able to demonstrate the effectiveness of this program, which helps us assure the continued federal investment. It's about $2.3 billion a year. That's a lot of money for Congress uh, to pony up every year for this program. Um, and they are actually very, usually very willing and eager to do it because we can show that the program works. Um, we've released a bunch of different data sets this year. The AIDS Drug Assistance Program, we've been getting data from them for several years and we had some challenges with data quality, but now we've got it to a point where we've released the, the data report for that. We've combined all of our different oral health programs to demonstrate the impact of oral health across all the programs we have. Our Part F dental program is quite small compared to what many of you all are doing in your sites. I mean, that's consolidated in a report that we release every other year. And then every couple of years, we, we highlight specific parts of our program. Uh, we also have state profiles that we continue to update regularly uh, for you to be able to go in and really drill down at individual states and where our investments are. So uh, the, the big incredible news that I was not exactly expecting is that we continue to see improvements in viral suppression. These viral suppression rates in the Ryan White program are people that have come into care at least once. So, um, uh, that means that they, uh, they have had a contact with them in the medical setting. But once again, our, the people in our program, two-thirds are living at or below the federal poverty line. So being able to achieve those kind of outcomes is really remarkable. And we continue uh, to have improvements. You can see about a 17-point improvement from 2010 to 2018. Some of that is obviously due to the fact that drugs are easier to take. But a lot of it, I think, is really due to our focus on the importance of people living with HIV being on treatment. Yeah, absolutely. 
we do have health disparities. Um, one of the disparities um, that's uh, painful for us to look at is uh, disparities by state. There are a lot of reasons why we have different rates of viral suppression in different states. Ryan White really wraps around existing infrastructure in states, so those states that invest more heavily in Medicaid and in other support services, uh, the Ryan White program can do more on top of that versus in other, some states that don't have that as, as robust the Medicaid program, we are filling the essential medical care costs of patients. And I think it's reflected here. Um, you can see every state has made improvements. The darker red means lower viral suppression. So every state has made improvement um, over, the last, over the last few years, but we've had particular improvements, um, uh, but we continue to have the disparities in the southeast and the south. This slide for you, those of you who have not seen it before, is a little bit complicated, so I'll walk you through it. This is viral suppression rates comparing 2010 with 2018 by different subpopulations. So the dark green bars are the 2010 rates for each subpopulation, and the light green is the uh, 2018 uh, viral suppression rate. And then the dotted line on the bottom, the darker line, is the overall national rate in 2010 versus the light green uh, dotted line at the top is 2018. So you can see, for example, if we go to the um, end of the slide, that unstable housing, we had significant disparity in 2010 where 54.8% of clients were virally suppressed compared to the national average of 69.5. And then we look at the green bar, we can see we had significant improvements in 2018, but we still have big disparities there. And uh, across the board, you can see that every subpopulation we look at has made gains. And in most subpopulations, we've closed that disparity gap. So through, I think, some of the quality improvement measures you've done and other things to really focus on where you see your disparities, we've closed the disparity gap. So disparities exist, but the gaps aren't as big. For example, among transgender uh, clients, we've had a 20% increase in uh, viral suppression in transgender clients, where we've had about a 17% increase nationally. Um, similarly, for youth, you can see that we've had a 30-point increase for youth getting them virally suppressed um, compared to the 17% national improvements. We have not seen any, improve, any closing of the disparity gap are in people unstably housed. People unstably housed need to be housed. Um, and you all do a great job to help people um, in terms of uh, staying virally suppressed if they're not stably housed, but we really need to focus on housing, and that's, I think, going to be a prominent part of the ending epidemic plan I'll talk about shortly. So um, we have been asked by the community to make sure we're focusing more on uh, people over 50. It's important to note that 45% um, of all clients are 50 and older, which makes sense. It's a success of, of, of HIV care and treatment, right, that people are diagnosed with HIV when they're young and get to be old now, which is great. Um, uh, so 90.6 of people over uh, 50 are virally suppressed, so that's really encouraging. But we hear from the community that um, that population is having increasing problems with social isolation. Um, people have a really tremendous problem transitioning onto Medicare because they've never had to necessarily deal with Medicare before if they've been Medicaid clients um, or if they were uh, yeah, duly eligible, they'll continue to be. But it's just been very complicated for people as they age into Medicare. Um, and, uh, and a lot of people uh, as it, are very concerned about going to long-term care facilities, LGBT communities. Back in the day, 
um, when I first started, I worked a lot in nursing homes to make sure that they were doing the right thing by people living with HIV there because they were young and very sick. Now they're getting older and are aging into, into nursing homes in some cases, and nursing homes aren't necessarily ready to receive those populations. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. We are doing quite a bit of work. We, we've clarified around being able to pay for Medicare, uh, premiums and cost sharings with Ryan White funds. Um, we've done some training on, on Medicare, uh, explaining Medicare to patients. Uh, the CDC Hearst Advisory Committee that we have has um, had a subcommittee actually that, that Mike Sag was a co-chair on that really gave us some specific advice about what kind of assistance providers needed as people are growing older with HIV. And Stephen Johnson's going to be talking about that later during the meeting. So in terms of ending the HIV epidemic, um, many of you have probably heard that in the State of the Union last year, President Trump um, stated that we would end the HIV epidemic in this country in the next 10 years, and there's a plan. The most important part of this plan is that the president and his budget said we are going to increase funding for HIV care and treatment. So in the first year of this plan, it was really modest. It was a $70 million increase in the Ryan White program, which is the first increase we've had for many, many years. It's also $50 million in the Community Health Center program and specific funding, increase in funding for, the, um, for CDC as well. Um, the goal is to decrease new infections by 75% in the first five years and 90% in 10 years. So in 10 years, we'd have less than 3,000 cases per year, which is the WHO definition of ending the epidemic. Um, they have four ways they're going to do that. First is we're going to increase diagnoses of people. We have about 15% of people living in this country who do not know their HIV diagnosis. So a variety of strategies to really extend uh, uh, testing, including getting people to be tested where they are rather than expecting it in medical care, but also to improve the testing we do in medical care because we don't do a very good job there either. Um, and also to look at some of the new technologies. It's much cheaper to get an HIV test in uh, France or in parts of Europe than it is here. So how can we import some of those cheaper technologies? Um, second is focusing on treatment uh, to get people treated. So we estimate there are about 150,000 people that have yet to, be, yet to be diagnosed and about 250,000 that are diagnosed but not in care. And many of you have seen those patients or seen those patients kind of cycle in and out. Uh, some people have just never even come to care that have been diagnosed. So what do we do? How do we do that differently? Um, uh, so it's not about the people that are current or the people that are currently in care that are not virally suppressed as a, a challenging population as well, but also the, those who are not in care at all. Uh, third is to uh, improve prevention strategies. It's really exciting for me when the Secretary of Health is talking about PrEP and the importance of sexual health for people. Um, it's, we don't usually have a sexual health framework in uh, many governments and many public health uh, organizations, so really to try to focus on a, a sexual health framework is really a great opportunity. And syringe services. Um, in, in general, the federal government has been uh, mildly in, interested in syringe services in the past, and now it's a major push. There's excellent data that syringe services work, uh, both in terms of reducing uh, new infections as well as getting people access to services they need. So um, it's a major push of this. And finally, um, the fourth pillar is respond, which is really about CDC working with health departments to get them to do better cluster detection so that you can, you can really intervene in active clusters and for people that test positive to get them into HIV care and treatment, and for people that are uh, testing negative to get them into prevention services, including PrEP. Um, that needs to be done really carefully with community. I think there have been many communities where it's been done incredibly well, um, but the community has a lot of fear about this, uh, given uh, some of the criminalization laws and other things. 
it's really a two-edged sword from their perspective, so um, that is something that's going to need some new ones. And uh, John Brooks, I haven't seen John yet, John Brooks from the CDC is here with us um, and can help speak to some of these issues. Um, so in this plan, the first five years is going to focus on the 48 counties, San Juan and Puerto Rico, where more than 50% of the new diagnoses occurred in the last um, five years. So that's where the new funding is to go. Interestingly, we said we're going to reduce uh, infections by 75% by focusing on jurisdictions where 50% of the funding is, new funding is going. So obviously that means we're going to have to be doing other things in other jurisdictions as well. And then when they map those, those 50 counties, it turns out they're all within cities, which uh, should not surprise a lot of people. Um, but they really, in the architects of this plan, really wanted to make sure that we got to uh, places, rural places, so in this first five years, we could learn how to do this kind of work in more rural areas. So they looked at the states that didn't have any of those uh, 50 counties, uh, but had at least 10% of their new infections were in rural areas. And so then we have the seven states that you can see there as well. Um, in those seven states, they'll focus on the epidemics where they are um, with some emphasis on rural areas. So for example, Missouri um, has Kansas City and St. Louis where most of their infections are. And so that's probably where most of their efforts will go. But some of their efforts will go to the rural areas in those states to learn about how to deliver services there, both pre, uh, PrEP services, testing services, and HIV care treatment services in rural areas. And obviously, some of you know how to do that. So when we mapped uh, the counties uh, to the Ryan White program, we saw that all of the counties in those two cities were within existing Part A, Ryan White Part A jurisdictions, with, with the exception of Hamilton County, which is in uh, Cincinnati, uh, which is in Cincinnati. So we will be funding our Part A jurisdictions to focus on the areas in those counties, as well as funding the state health departments to focus on those um, uh, the seven states. Um, and uh, so we, the other important thing to know is that the funding hasn't come through yet. Both the House and the Senate, when they marked up their uh, their appropriations bills, uh, agreed that we that we should get this funding. Um, but as we do not yet have a, a budget passed by Congress, we're in a continuing resolution, so this program doesn't yet exist until we have the funding to make it happen. Um, the other thing is we don't have any uh, authority in Ryan White to direct money to cities and states like this outside of the formula that we run, which is largely based on living HIV-AIDS cases at diagnosis. So in order to direct money to these specific counties and states, we need special authority. So we asked for a broad public health authority to do this, and should we get that, we are going to give the cities and states broader authority so they can do things outside of the strict limitations of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program to make this program work. So programs will have a lot more flexibility. Some of those part, parts of the Ryan White program that really chafe hard, they'll have flexibility around it when it applies to Ryan White. I got to tell you, that doesn't apply to program income, which I know is one of the biggest blister causes in the country uh, because the the issues around um, program income needing to go to Ryan White specific activities will continue because that is a grant regulation. It's not related directly to the Ryan White program. Um, but we are going to be funding cities and states. Um, we're funding a technical assistance provider. We'll be giving some funding to the AETCs and um, some systems coordination funding uh, since the cities and states don't always have the amount of staffing they need to really coordinate all these efforts. Um, so for us, uh, we are focusing on um, three specific populations within Ryan White. Those people who are in care who are not virally suppressed yet. Um, and we know uh, that many of those patients just have very, very high levels of need. So how do we 
what do we have to do differently to reach those patients? And we'll have more funding to try to do things differently. Secondly, those newly diagnosed with HIV to make sure their linkage to care rates are really high in this country, but that retention in the first year is not always so high. So what do we need to do to retain people over that first year and enhance engagement? And third, for those people not in care, often for those patients, the system that we currently have does not work for them. So what do we need to do differently? We know some of this is around transitions, people in and out of jails and prisons, for example, is a way that people lose, lose access to care. So how do we manage those transitions better? As well as integrating mental health and substance abuse services. There are programs around this country, there's a great one in Detroit, where they go into the patient's home to find patients that are out of care. In addition to finding the patient, they often find the patient's boyfriend and then some friends that are crashing and they're all HIV, uh, living with HIV and they can engage them all in care. So how do you do that? Or delivering care services in the home to people that aren't necessarily homebound. There are just different ways we need to think about what we need to do to reach the patients that we haven't reached yet. So we have done several things uh, working towards this. In terms of improving viral suppression and de decreasing disparities, we know that the quality work you do is important. Some of our policies were a little bit onerous about how to do quality work, so we have changed those uh, to improve, um, to reduce the administrative burden. Um, we have changed the way, uh, we've clarified around rapid eligibility so that we can uh, decrease opportunities where people show up, at the uh, show up at the pharmacy, for example, and are told their ADAP expired and they're done. Um, so we've given states some flexibility about how to manage some of that, which is distinctly different than what we've done in the past. Um, uh, and uh, we've, we've rewrote our jail and prison policy to once again make it more explicit that if there is, that the pair of last resort requirement in Ryan White applies to, to state and federal funding. And so if there's no uh, local statute that requires jails to pay for medical care so they're not doing it, that Ryan White, Ryan White dollars can be used in jail settings, and we've made that explicit there. Uh, these people were unclear about that. Um, we've also done a couple of other things um, that are important. First is uh, when we look at uh, disparities, you all have come to us over and over again and said, okay, fine, I'm, we're doing really poorly with youth. Tell me what to do with youth and we'll do that. So a lot of times we don't have an evidence-based trial done at NIH, but many of you have been very successful. So we've looked at some of those models where we have some evidence based on interventions that you all have done, um, and we're trying to get build a better compilation of what those are so you can easily find them and sort of have peer-to-peer -peer sharing of what has worked. Um, and we're working on that now. We're working with NIH on that. Um, and CDC, we're also working on um, and actually, uh, when we have successful interventions, then actually paying people to apply them in their clinics and figuring out what we need to make that work. Um, we are continuing to engage community. We feel that our work with community is critically important and we need people with HIV to increase their opportunities to engage in care and to engage in planning. Um, and so we continue to fund a variety of activities there. Um, and we need to continue to address co-occurring co conditions, particularly STIs. So we funded some linkage, we funded funding for uh, jurisdictions to better link their STI data and their HIV data where they don't do that, as well as uh, to develop a series of, um, actually Rutgers uh, has this uh, cooperative agreement, to a series of interventions to help clinics just more naturally be able to do multi-site or extragenital testing for STIs and to uh, enhance screening and treatment of patients. Uh, so we have been around the country doing listening uh, sessions, uh, and we will have a listening session on Saturday afternoon. Uh, we've heard that things like mental health uh, disorders, uh, incarceration, transportation, homelessness, 
are important, that we need to have new partners at the table, and we completely agree with that. We need to train more clinic staff, and we need to be able to better address stigma and decriminalization laws. Uh, we know there are workforce shortages now, and they will increase if we add 400,000 people in care. So how are we going to address those? And uh, those are strategies we're still working on. We need to go from a strength-based position, um, and we need to make sure we're innovative. So uh, in winding up, I just want to say a couple of things. We are going to have a session on Saturday where we put out a call to all of you asking what have you done in your clinics to improve across some of these uh, areas. And we had, a, we had a great response. We've got a, a bunch of great practices. So uh, that'll be Saturday, a session here. And then John Brooks and I uh, will do a listening session uh, to hear from all of you in terms of ending the epidemic and what you want to see from us, from us to be better partners, as well as particular challenges you have in your communities you want us to know about. Uh, that'll be a Saturday during one of the workshop sessions. So thank you very much. Thank you. You want to sit? Thank you some questions. So I've got several questions on cards here. That's great. You're also welcome to go to the microphones, which are on each side, and I'll just dig right in. Um, one of the most important issues in the workforce is the aging of providers. Some of us were born in the Elizabethan era, which is how we know about Hamlet. Um, what, is, what can be done to broaden the workforce and make it younger? Yes, yeah, so I've got to say that the fact that we have so many people here that are relatively new in HIV care means we continue to attract people. Um, we are working to better integrate HIV care, um, like specialized tracks, into family practice programs so that if someone is going through their family practice residency, there's sort of a new movement there to better integrate HIV care and treatment. So we developed the national curriculum, the AETC national curriculum. I hope all of you have been there. Um, to help facilitate uh, residency programs uh, to integrate HIV care treatment. Uh, we've done, a, we did a similar work several years ago around uh, nurse practitioner pro programs and PA programs, so we continue to do that as well. Yeah. And double the salary of all HIV providers. Well, so the, yeah, there's some, they're just, yes. <laughs> you can. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are definitely some structural issues in our health care system that I don't think Sorry. I can fix from Ryan White. No, I, I, I'm one of them. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are definitely some structural issues uh, around the care of primary care, which is what this is. Which, what, this is. what we hope, though, is through the Ryan White program, um, people are really able to get more things done because they have this team approach, and I think that really does enhance retention and linkage. It, it does. You got a person? Oh, yes. Hi, Steve Johnson. Uh, uh, thank you for, for the update. You mentioned some of the limitations of the current law, and, and, and one of the things I think about is the difficulty in terms of integrating things like PrEP and prevention services and so on. Is there any prospect of actually a new law uh, as opposed to kind of the current yearly reappropriation? So that, that's a great question. The Ryan, White, uh, Care, the Ryan White Care Act, which was what it was in 1990, had been reauthorized about every five years, which is usually what the length of it was, which really showed um, the interest of Congress in the program on sort of the bipartisan, bicameral interest. Um, when the CARE Act expired in 2013, it was in the middle of the Affordable Care Act, and the advocacy community at that time really did not want to proceed with reauthorization because it was unclear. There was a lot of movement. There's no need for Ryan White anymore. We've got people are going to have Medicaid. Obviously, that was not true. In places that have had Medicaid, the Ryan White program has been able to make, you know, sort of go further, faster. Um, and so now I think uh, the advocacy community continues to not want to reopen the Ryanway program right now in sort of the contentious Capitol Hill kind of 
so that's why it hasn't been reopened lately, I think, is really because the community has not wanted to reopen it. Uh, that said, there are definitely some things that could be done. I think prep is one of those things that the community is a little divided on. I think if you ask people, do you want to do prep, and they say with more money, definitely. But without more money, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Um, uh, so that's, that's one of those areas that's, that's a little bit fraught, and I'm not sure where it would go with reauthorization. But definitely, we see the importance of you all doing prep, because in many communities, you are places that are sort of culturally inviting for people and have a more of a sexual health framework. So it's more likely to be successful. Um, and for that reason, in this new initiative, the community health centers in the first year is getting $50 million increase, and they're funding community health centers that are Ryan White co-funded as the first place they're going to try to expand their PrEP services, which is care and treatment for PrEP and testing, because they know they've got um, uh, leaders in those, pro in those community health centers that understand issues around the populations we're trying to reach. And to be clear, one of the questions was uh, to make it crystal clear that you they're, with their current Ryan White law, um, you can't spend money on PrEP for that's, uninfected people. That's right. So in, in the current Ryan White law, you can provide no clinical services for people that are uninfected. You can do testing and you can do counseling Linkage. and you can do referral. Yeah. But you can't do, so you can do all those things as part of PrEP. A lot of states have, not a lot, some states have used their, their ADAP infrastructure to, to, um, to provide PrEP. So they, Pay, they pay their ADAP staff 10% of their salary off of a different source and are able to provide PrEP like through this network that already exists by, by leveraging the infrastructure by, by using other dollars. Yeah. Hi, Gary Spinner from Southwest Community Health Center in Bridgeport. Um, thank you for that great presentation and it's really wonderful to see how effective the Ryan White program is. Uh, my question is, you mentioned about the transition to Medicare, which is a real issue for some of my patients. and. One issue that I face as a prescriber is that um, commercial payers are making decisions about what medications my patients may have access to, um, particularly as some medications get go generic, um, though we have improved medications that have come out since then, um, it's, it's a real barrier to uh, choosing the best medication for my patient and not having a commercial payer make that decision. Um, what is Ryan White program going to do about that? Yes. Yeah, so, um I, I, I definitely hear you. We, we are fortunate to be able to get all of the regulations that are coming through CMS usually to comment on. So we've been able to comment and, and deflect or limit, uh, you know, we've been able to comment on, um, as regulation has been coming through, on what the impact will be for people living with HIV to be, have that be a consideration at CMS. Um, uh, and then the community as well is, plays a very important role when some of those decisions are coming out in terms of make, about, um, about uh, essential drugs and other things like uh, that your input is actually heard by the White House and, or, and the department and things have changed based on the input that you all have given in the last year. So I think that that is an important role. Um, We've made it clear, too, that if a drug, if a patient needs to be on a certain medication that's not available from other sources, that Ryan White can pay for that. So we've done that, for example, around some states where patients could not access uh, hepatitis C drugs through Medicaid for any variety of purposes. We've made it clear that Ryan White will be able to pay then because it's not available. It's not like it's, you're not violating pay of last resort. But in terms of really fixing the way CMS works and the healthcare system works more broadly, that I cannot provide you relief on. Thank you. Hi, Amy Wilkin from uh, Wake Forest University. Thank you for the presentation. Um, could you comment on the reimagining of Part D and then at a program level what we should be starting to think about? 
Yes, so there was some stuff on the slides I didn't get into because I was running out of time. Um, one of them was reimagine Part D. So uh, as I said, we try to provide leadership in addition to just providing resources to the program. So the Part D program has been very effective. It's really changed over time. I think it was an important part of why we initially were able to decrease perinatal transmission so far in this country, but it hasn't grown very much. So right now, if you have a Part D program, you have all these enriched services for a very select group of people in that community. Whereas nationally, most women, for example, are cared for outside of the Part D program. Part D is sort of, definitely cares for most of the children that Ryanway cares for, but the adolescents and women aren't necessarily getting most of their resources through Part D. So how do we leverage Part D to make sure that we are enhancing the care of like youth in particular across the country and not just in those few places that have historically had a Part D grant? Um, so that's what that reimagine is about. We do not plan on defunding current Part D programs, but we're trying to figure out how should we um, split the baby in Part D sounds bad, doesn't it? But how should we, uh, you know, how, how can we both continue the services that are existing in these communities that are working very well, uh, as well as enhancing and leveraging the part D, some of the Part D funding to better have a national uh, impact? Hi, Adam Lake from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm a family doctor and uh, I work with a residency program and every year we graduate one or two um, of our residents who actually can sit for the HIV specialist exam and go on to be certified. Um, however, very few of these residents go into HIV care. One of the biggest reasons is they can't find a job. Um, and I hear a lot about this, um, this shortage of HIV providers, but when they go looking for jobs, it's actually pretty challenging to find job postings that want them. They're either looking for an ID physician or they just kind of hope that somebody will be trained in HIV so you can't figure out that, um, that this is kind of an HIV specific position. So I think that there's kind of this mismatch because I, I hear about the shortage, but then I know that there's a lot of residents going out there and I experienced this myself where I found one job um, when I looked across seven or eight different states and probably cold emailed and sent my resume out to 100 different places. So I don't know what to do about that, but I do want to bring that up. I'm watching the audience and everybody wants to send you their email address, so, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we have a legion, right? Some people are standing up, pick yeah. me. Um, so that's, yeah. I mean, if we look online, I, I can't find those jobs. That's so a really interesting gap. So we will take that back to figure out how we can do a better Great job point. of connecting all of, uh, part, part C programs <laughs> in particular come to us regularly looking for people how we can better connect some of those vacancies with people that are looking for positions. We, and Letha Healy and uh, Sherilyn Crooks are in the audience, I don't see them right now, but they will we'll take that back and, and, and noodle on that, because that is something that we should be able to help fix. Yeah, we'll set up like the NFL draft, you know, and just go through. Um, Alice. Hey, Alice Thornton, University of Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. Um, just to follow up a little bit with that, it may not be that the jobs are not out there. It might be that the pay is not necessarily a pay that people can take because that happened to one of our um, fellows. She was quite interested in a, in a well-known Ryan White program, but the pay was so low that she just couldn't do that, mm -hmm. and particularly in a city that um, is quite expensive to live in. And so I, I have to put in the plug again that we're just gonna keep saying it until it finally happens somehow, Laura. We've got to look at ways to help um, young people that are graduating from our fellowships get funding um, 
to uh, help with their enormous amount of debt. A person that owes 200000 250000 300000 cannot take a quote-unquote pay cut to work for HIV, work with HIV patients. Yeah, yeah and, so, and so we have, tr we have had people, um, when, when people were looking at like shortage designation areas and other things, we've had people that represent the HIV provider community on those panels. Um, uh, and I know there's been some legislation introduced from time to time, specifically looking at having more loan repayment. It certainly is consistent with some of the philosophy around loan repayments in the country. The programs that currently exist, and those are actually like the National Health Service Corps that are managed out of HRSA. If you're doing just Ryan White specific work, the legislation is such that you have to provide sort of more generalized care so they don't qualify. But if you're in a community health center and your job might just be HIV, but the community health center provides more, fun, more uh, flexibility, then you might be able to get uh, repayment there. But that is definitely something that the community needs to continue to work on. If we do the NFL draft, we can pay NFL salaries. That'll fix it. Uh, thank you for the presentation, Pepe Cuero from Immokalee, Florida. I work in a very rural setting and this goes back to the par third party payers controlling how patients get access to it. I had a very difficult time prescribing hepatitis C drugs to individuals because I am an internist and I was not GI trained or infectious disease trained and I had to write a long letter saying, look, this is in the middle of nowhere. There are no GI specialists. There's no ID specialists. If you do not give them these drugs, it's criminal. Mm. And they seeded and went ahead and provided. But I think this piggy banks onto the same problem where unless we come up with some specific ways to say these individuals have the ability to prescribe these drugs and have been trained and the HIV certification will be one of them, it's going to continue to be a problem. Mm. I understand that behind my backs, because I've done this for 30 years, uh, people were actually going to bat for me for my town Thank that you, if they did not allow me to continue to do what I've done for 30 years, people would not have access to care. So somehow we need to link those two issues regarding the third party payers <coughs> and our influence. Great. Thank you. Good. So we've got two minutes left and a bunch of questions. I'll go quickly. One is about uh, the notion of HIV clusters in Appalachia and Scott County and other places, and um, are there in, uh, what, what's being done about that, and how do we address it? And John Brooks will be here. Yeah. So on the so we work when when we have a cluster outbreak, we work closely with the local government and with CDC and HRSA. We all work closely together. Um, and so what usually what we do in HRSA is really map all the resources we have in that area and figure out how we can augment them. So in Scott County, for example, we were able to get a community, the community health center was a new one had been funded, but not exactly in that area. We were able to get them to expand to that area and really increase services there. So that's what we try to do. Um, sometimes uh, the state government, uh, you know, is there's sort of different levels of interest of public health, and that is a big challenge. Yep. Uh, real quickly, just a question about why rural, a lot of rural areas were overlooked in the 48 target zones and how that was that determined and feels a little discriminatory. For yeah, me. yeah, people were really frustrated with that. So I think when they first decided we, we will just look, they were trying to take sort of a public health approach and this was, uh, architects of this were sort of at the political level in HHS. Um, they said, let's look at where all the new infections are happening, let's focus on the new infections, which was the PEPFAR strategy and it's worked really effectively. And it wasn't until they actually, I think, mapped it out and realized all of them were in cities that they realized they had to have a different approach. So with that, then they went back and said, how can we 
from a public health perspective, sort of use our data to figure out what that next level down. And that's where they got the, at least 10% of the cases were in rural areas of those states. And that's how those states were chosen. Final question, telemedicine. Mm -hmm. um, Huge. Ideas, yeah. Huge. So telemedicine, I think, has to be part of the solution here. We've heard from a lot of people. I've been I've had an opportunity to go to all, all seven of those states this past year. Um, and we've heard especially about um, PrEP or getting all sorts of services that people really do not want to get services locally often because there's so much stigma and discrimination locally. Um, but they, can't, they also can't travel to the distance they need to travel to the next provider. So I think telemedicine, and different than telemedicine is often done where it's like in a healthcare setting, but into people's homes are definitely something that we think needs to be explored. And different people are doing it really successfully in different parts of the country. Um, we've been working closely, uh, we have an office of rural, federal office of rural health policy that sits at HRSA, and they've been working um, to really try to work with CMS, with Medicare and Medicaid about how you fund telehealth or how you can reimburse telehealth. In the Ryan White program, you can. It's a fundable service. There's no, there's no prohibition around telehealth. So we'd encourage people to look at that. Great, thank you. Um, thank you.